Good morning. We are back together in house church. We're glad that we're once again all in one place. And we are continuing our study of 1 John. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to 1 John chapter 4. And we're going to start in verse 7. This is part 8 of the series. And we are only two lessons out, two sermons out from completing this series. So we will have gone through in the next two weeks the whole book of 1 John, which I think is important because 1 John is a book that has been interpreted in different ways. There are two primary ways to look at it. And the most common way people preach 1 John, even among Baptists, evangelicals, fundamentalists, the primary way that it's taught is wrong. And the way that it's taught is as a test of relationship. So the whole book is about if you do this, if you do that, you're abiding, you're walking in the light, and God is dwelling in you, and, and you are dwelling in him. And there are tests of that, and people assume, at least most commonly, that this is about whether or not you're saved. Are you in the light? Are you abiding in Christ? They take that as being one and the same with having a relationship with him. And so people will go to 1 John and they will read this book as if this is the manual right here to determine whether or not you are really saved. And I can remember when I was, I think it was high school, but in our little church library in Mount Hope, there was a book by John MacArthur and it was about assurance of salvation. And at the time, I really wanted that sort of study because I was having doubts about my salvation. So I read that book, and it was the worst book to read for assurance of salvation. But it went back to 1 John and said, are you doing this? Are you doing that? If you're doing these things, then you can be assured that you're really saved. And I was like, well, I think I am, but how do I know I'm doing enough? And that's really what it comes down to. How do you know you're doing enough? But 1 John isn't about a test of relationship. It's about a test of fellowship. And when you understand that, the book is so much more fulfilling for a Christian. And so, in chapter 4, verse 7, let's begin reading there. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. Now, in this context, he's talking about loving one another. This is in the Christian context. So, he's talking about the community of Christians. Loving one another is illustrative of the fact that they've been born again and that they're walking in fellowship with God. I don't know any of you when it comes to family connections, okay? Other than, you know, my little family that's in this room, but the rest of you, you're my Christian family. Okay, so we talk about the history that, you know, we may have had. I know uh, we've run into each other at certain times in our lives, and then we ran back into each other because it's a small world, but we're not family, genetically speaking, okay, or by law. But us gathering here together and treating each other as family illustrates that we have been born again and being in the family of God is such a big deal to us. Jamie's having a fit. Just try to do your best to... He is too. Yeah, so try to do your best to understand that. Uh, but anyways, us coming together in this setting illustrates the fact that we have accepted Christ and we're born again. Now, I think it would have been a whole lot easier for John to say that back then because he is 
overseeing these congregations, and he knows these people have a good grasp on the gospel. But unfortunately, there are a lot of churches today where I don't think that same assumption could be made because these people who go to church may not understand the gospel because the churches aren't preaching it correctly and are preaching the true gospel. But at this time, he could say, loving one another, he who loveth is born of God and knoweth God. Now, what happens if you're not loving each other? Well, in that case, he's going to say that you don't know God. And knowing there has to do with that fellowship that we were just talking about. And so you can imagine yourself having a conversation with a friend or a family member who is acting in a way that is different than the past. Maybe they're being inappropriate. Maybe they are just being rude and hateful, whatever. But you might look at them and say, I just don't even know you anymore. I just don't even know you anymore. And it means that they're acting in a way that doesn't go along with the fact that you have a relationship with them. And that can also be said of the Christian walk. You can be born of God, but you can be at odds with him such that you don't know him. You're not walking side by side with him. And so knowing God obviously is more than just one decision to accept Jesus and get saved. Knowing God is a lifelong process. Uh, I know God more now than I did when I was six years old. And whenever I'm sinning against God by not loving my brothers in Christ, in that moment, I'm not holding God's hand. I'm not knowing God in my experience, in my practice. And so verse 7, before we talk about the, the practical side of things, I don't want to jump ahead. Verse 7, and for your notes, the first point is the supernatural nature of love. The supernatural nature of love. It says, love is of God. Now, what does love is of God mean? Does that mean that God is just loving, that he has the attribute of love like any human does? You know, I am loving, okay? God has love. God is love. That's right. And so that's what John is trying to tell us here. God is love. Love is of God because God is love. That's what it says in verse 8. He that loveth not knoweth not God. You're not walking hand in hand with God because God is love. How can you say that you're close to and you know this person whenever you're not loving? Because after all, he is love. Now, this is kind of philosophical, but it's important to understand that love is not something above God. Like there's a standard above God. We have a standard above us as humans. Okay, I'm not love. Love does not begin and end with me. Okay, Love is this standard that existed long before I came into the world, long before I came into existence. So where does love come from? Who is the standard? Where does it originate? And it originates, as John says right here, with God. So God is love. It's part of his attributes. Uh, think about goodness. We talk about God being good. Does that mean that God, he's a good boy? He, he keeps the rules. Is that what we mean when we say God is good? No, we could say, and not be wrong in saying this, that God is goodness itself. That goodness finds its origin in him. Eternally, he is the essence, the source, the origin of goodness. And the same thing can be said of love. It is the highest moral good. It's the highest virtue. If you could say, what is the, the best thing that you can do, morally speaking? It's love, people. And love is not selfish. Love is selfless. It's giving. And the ultimate example of that being manifested, as we'll see, is God taking on flesh and giving himself for the sins of the world, as we'll see in just a moment. Absolutely. Yes, Jesus saying, Father, forgive them, even though they're committing the worst crime imaginable in the history of humanity. And so 
The supernatural nature of love reminds us that love originates in eternity. So that's the next point for your notes. Love is originating in eternity. God didn't create love. Yes, yes. And again, origin can be loosely used to say, where does it come from? Well, it comes from eternity, which in a sense, it's just always been around because God's always been around. So here's the thing. How can love exist before people to love? And this is one of the big problems with Islamic theology or really any theology that makes God a, a monad. Okay, that's a, a word you may not hear very often, but a, a singular uh, lonely entity that has no one else around him. And that's what Islam basically teaches is that before God created the angels, before he created humans, there was no one, nothing but God. And, and in Islam, there's no Trinity. So God's just one person. So how can God be love in that case? You can't be love unless you are loving. Okay. You can't be loving unless there is someone to love. And so, who was God loving? Well, Christianity has the answer, and it's the most logical answer. If love comes from God, if it's not the, the byproduct of society, if it's not the byproduct of uh, evolutionary chance, like it may be the result of survival instinct or, or something like that, which doesn't make any sense because it goes against evolution. Evolution is inherently selfish survival of, you know, me, number one. Uh, love in its highest form is giving of oneself, which would undercut evolution. But if it doesn't come from those origins, then it must come from God. And that means God must be multi-personal. Okay. Now, exactly how many persons logic isn't able to tell you. Okay. So you would just have to say more than one. Okay. You have to have one who loves and one who is loved. And one who obviously reciprocates that love because we're talking God. It's perfect love. Okay. So there would be this perfect relationship of love. Now, the Bible gives us the answer as to how many there are. There's the Father, there's the Son, and there's the Holy Spirit. So revelation confirms logic, makes sense of that, and it gives us more information that we need. So love originates in eternity. The second point is it is engrafted in us in a moment. So engrafting, that's the next answer for your notes and grafting in a moment in verse seven B it says everyone that loveth is born of God. So whenever we are born of God, this love that existed eternally, God, father, son, Holy spirit, we become part of that eternal love, that eternal family. The moment we place our faith in Jesus. Now, obviously we're not God from the moment we're born again, we become children of God. And we're not even children of God in the exact sense Jesus is because he's the only begotten. So we are the same type of child, same kind of child in terms of our relationship. But when it comes to our, yes, but we are adopted and we are changed. So adoption has the idea of being brought into the family, legally speaking. But we're also born again to regenerate. So something does happen to our nature. Okay, so when it comes to, how much of a child of God are we? We're obviously not like Jesus because Jesus is all knowing and he's omnipotent and he's omnipresent. Okay. So again, this is where we have to distinguish between kind and degree. We are like Jesus in that we are children of God now. Okay. And of course he's the origin. He's the source. He's actually the one 
after whom we have been made. In fact, uh, even ancient Jews like Philo, before the New Testament was written, are really close to the same time the New Testament was written. Philo talked about the image of God, like what is the image of God? And he saw the Logos as being the image of God. And so John, he also talks about the Logos. Paul does too. When I say Logos, it's translated the word, as in in the beginning was the word. And so Philo, this Jew who's not Christian, according to some traditions, he ran into Peter and got saved. I hope that's true. Don't know. But uh, Paul, John, they both talk about this concept. And Paul calls Jesus the image of God. So I think if you were to sit down, Paul, and say, after whose image were we made? I think he'd say, Jesus, the son. Because we, when we're born again, become sons and daughters of God. But obviously, because we are finite human beings, we will never be exactly like Jesus. So we'll always fall short of that. That's why Jesus is worthy of worship and we're not. So this is one of those things that I think cults can really, they can have a a veneer of truth, but teach error with that veneer underneath the surface. And there are some cults that believe that we can become exactly like Jesus, that Jesus was a man who became a God and we can also become a God too. That's what Mormonism teaches. So the veneer of truth is we do become like Jesus. We partake of his nature to some extent. I mean, Peter talks about uh, partaking of the divine nature, but the Bible clearly demarcates between the creator and the creation. And so, yes. And so Jesus, and again, if you want to get into the Greek, you could really have a good study on this, but Jesus is the effulgence, as it says in Hebrews one, that's like the direct radiance, like the light coming from the sun. And we reflect that radiance. We're a reflection. Yeah. And so Jesus and us are related. He is the only begotten son and we are made after his image. And so we are by extension called children of God, but not to the same degree that he is. I mean, I'm a finite being. I am not a real genuine God. Okay. I would never, I would never claim that of myself. Um, I would never claim that I'm son of God in the same sense Jesus is. Again, he's the only begotten. So we're not going to get into Nicene theology right now, the Nicene Creed. But essentially, that is what Scripture teaches, that Jesus is the only begotten son. Because he's the only begotten, he's just like the Father. I'm not just like the Father. Now, Christians have this wonderful privilege. Because we're born again and we are God's children, we're in God's family. Angels are not given the status as sons. If you want to know that for sure, you want me to back it up, read Hebrews 1. It's very clear that the angels are not called sons as Jesus is. And we partake of sonship through our relationship with Christ. When he comes to live within us and he changes us through the Holy Spirit, we become children of God. So angels will not inherit the world to come. Christians will. Okay, But still, the Bible makes it clear that we are not God's. And so Mormonism, while it has that veneer of truth, we become like Jesus. They take it way too far. And how are they able to get away with that? Because wouldn't it be illogical to say a finite being like a human could become God? Well, guess what? They don't define God that way. They take God and they they bring him down to their level. They say God's not infinite. God's not eternal. So then in that case, it's really easy to become like him because he's not an infinite being. They say that God was created by another God who was created by another God. And so that's how they get away with it. But we know that the Bible does teach that God is infinite. 
And so while we become children of God, we will never ascend to that level. We will always be infinitely below him, but thankfully he loves us anyways, which is what's so amazing about this love of God for us. That even though he is infinitely above us, he brings us into the family and adopts us and he gives us this wonderful inheritance. So that that love of God, that sonship, being a child, is engrafted in a moment. And you know, a lot of people will say, all humans are God's children. That's not true. All humans are made after God's image. Okay, That means that God intended for them to have dominion. God intended for them to have a relationship with him. <coughs> and they are in a position which makes that possibility very accessible. Okay, An animal is not in a position to become a child of God ever. An angel is not in a position to be a child of God ever. You Humans said, are. You said, you said angels Yes, angels will not inherit the kingdom to come. Yes. Yes, but it's difference be- there's a difference between inheriting a kingdom and being in it. They will surely be in God's house. But to use an older analogy, which to us today in America with our constitutional republic, this doesn't resonate. But if you were to go back even a couple hundred years ago in the UK, you know, in Europe, across the pond, the idea of having, or, you know, I don't know if this applies there. Maybe you could tell me, Scott, because, you know, Canadian. But... Having servants in the house who are connected to that household and perhaps have been connected to that household for generation after generation after generation, that is different That is different than a child. Now, a child is going to be under the, the tutorship. Is that a word? <laughs> They're going to have the servants as their tutors. Okay, a governess. Okay, a butler is going to be able to tell that kid what's what. Okay, because they have been delegated that authority by the father. But eventually... That child's going to grow up, and who's going to be in charge, the butler or the child? The child, okay? So right now, angels are ministers. They're serving us. Uh, It says they are minister to those who are heirs of salvation in Hebrews 1. So behind the scenes, they're working for our benefit, doing God's will, and they are more powerful than us. They are more intelligent than us, but there will come a day where we will come into our own and receive our inheritance And the angels then will be part of God's kingdom eternally, blessed, enjoying it, but they will be fulfilling a role as servants. They won't be brothers and sisters with Christ. No, they will not. They will never be able to say that I'm one of the redeemed. And that's what sets us apart from the angels. Uh, They're not made in God's image. They are not offered sonship as we are through regeneration and uh, adoption. And we do not, not, that's right, Sandy. We we do not... And guys, it's so it's so amazing. I really wish Christians would understand this. And it's it's like ancient theologians understood it. Uh, I think that even uh, people who are familiar with the early church, commentators that are old, you know, more classic, they understood it. But growing up in a Baptist church, I mean, how often have I heard the word Nicene? I never heard the word Nicene Creed until I was in college. Okay, we've heard Apostles Creed, right? Now, if you're part of a Methodist denomination or Anglican or Presbyterian, they're a little bit more familiar with the creeds, okay? And that's why they know about the idea of Jesus being the only begotten, okay? And and we're made after his image and we become children of God. They understand those things a little bit. But for me, it was like, okay, Jesus is God. Yes, that's what scripture teaches, okay? He's the son of God too. But I don't really know how that goes along with him being God. He's just, he's God. 
and he's the son of God. And when my mom told me that, I said, I don't understand. She said, I don't either. And I said, okay, but it's in the Bible, right? And she said, yes. So Baptists are biblicists. If it's there in the Bible, that's all we need. But the creeds, they're, they're the product. They're the result of biblical investigation. And as such, um, we have to, we have to listen to what they say and compare it with scripture because scripture is the authority. The creeds aren't. I do get a little uncomfortable when a lot of Baptists are like creeds, 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 catechisms, catechisms, catechisms. I'm, I'm not against them, but I think that we should always measure with scripture. So I think it's pros and cons like Baptist, you got biblicism down, you know, and that biblicism has led you to proclaim the gospel faithfully, faithfully, eternal security. Like Baptist got that down. Sadly, you know, because the Lordship salvation, that's being, you know, hindered somewhat. But Baptists have the, this is the word of God. It's unchanging. It's inerrant. And this is our standard. And other denominations, they, I think, fall short of that to a great extent. However, they do understand some doctrines that we as Baptists share. They understand them better because they have the insights of theologians who have been thinking about this stuff a lot longer than we have. And so I think that, listen, by all means, take a look at the creeds. Uh, I think that there are no creeds that we can trust to the same extent that we trust Scripture because Scripture is God's Word and they're not. However, I really did have a problem with the Nicene Creed for a while because though I believe that Jesus was God, and I still do, the idea of Jesus being the Son of God really bothered me. I don't know why. I, I thought that maybe he's Son of God because he's born of a virgin. And I thought perhaps he became the Son whenever he was born of a virgin. Now, of course, he existed before, and he's God. He's always existed. But when I thought of God as a trinity in eternity, I had a hard time thinking of him in terms of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because Son, to me, at the time, sounded kind of inferior to Father. But the more I studied Scripture, the more I realized that's not the case at all. And the analogy of my own Father it helped me to wrap my mind around a little bit. Now, of course, Jesus is eternal, right? So there's never time he was born. When we say Jesus is the only begotten, we're not speaking in any literal sense. The, the word in Greek means one of a kind. He's the one of a kind son. Any begetting that we can conceive is in eternity and so has no beginning. Jesus has always existed. But I want to put this on our level as finite human beings. How can we understand this relationship? Well, my dad, okay, now speaks to me as an adult. Okay, he does. Uh, my dad doesn't boss me around like he would have when I was a little kid, okay, when I was, you know, Jed's age, okay? My dad will ask me to do things, though, sometimes. So when we're down at my pappy's farm, okay, if he needs help with something, he will ask me to help him. Buddy, can you come and help me out with this? Now, because he's my father, he automatically has respect in my eyes. And so when he asks me to do something, I'm going to willingly give him my help. Okay. However, my dad knows I'm the head of my own family and he does treat me as a man with respect. And that's that equality right there, I think, illustrates the relationship father and son. Okay. Jesus has the exact same attributes as the father. Now, my dad, okay, there was a time in the past where he was strong and I was weak. Okay. But I've grown up and now I'm strong myself. Okay, there was a time in the past where my dad knew a whole lot more than me because I was a little kid 
and now I've grown a knowledge. So my dad is going to see me as an equal. Now, the only difference here between this analogy and the father and the son is, well, they've coexisted for all eternity. Jesus did not grow up. Okay, now he did when he came, became a man, but we're talking about before that. But the son and the father are equals in that they have the same attributes, just like me and my father now. However, even though me and my father are equals, I respect him as father. And if he asks me to do something, I'm going to do it because I'm his son. And so the son submits to the authority of his father, even though him and the father are equals in terms of power, how long they've been around, how much knowledge they have. All of those things are equal between them. Now, it, it does help make sense of um, where our relationships come from. Why does God, when he designed everybody, why does he say, okay, well, y'all are going to have children. Mankind, you're going to have babies. Angels don't have babies. Um, <laughs> they don't. Um, animals do, but I would say that animals reflect us, okay, rather than the other way around. So why did God give us the ability to have children? Well, what that does is on a finite level, okay, because we're finite, we have beginnings and endings, in time, we are modeling this eternal relationship that coexisted with Father and Son and Holy Spirit. So the Son is the Son of the Father eternally, and the Father is the Father of the Son eternally. And that kind of love between Father and Son, which had no beginning, is modeled by human beings having children and having that parent-child love. Even when the child grows up, even when they attain equality with the parent, there is still that level of respect of the child for the father. So it bothered me, I would say, in the past to see the son submitting to the father in eternity. I would say that he took up that role of submission at the cross. But why was the son sent? That's the question. That's what really got me. Why was the son sent? The father wasn't sent. The son was sent. And the son went willingly out of love. But before that, the fa- it says in, uh, in Psalms, um, let me, that's uh, not Psalms, sorry. Uh, got my verse reference there mixed up. Uh, Micah 5.2, it talks about the son's goings forth have been from eternity. So he's been going forth from who? From the father. So has the father been going forth? Has the son been sending the father? No, it's the, the father's been sending the son. But that in no way diminishes his essence as God. Just as my dad asking me to do something, hey, buddy, will you go down to the store and pick something up for me? That does not diminish the equality that I have with my father. He respects me. He knows that I am just as strong. In some cases, I'm, I'm stronger than he is now because I'm, I'm younger than he is. Okay, But that equality does not in any way infringe upon the fact that the son does submit to the father. And so that is something that I think Baptists would do well to study more. Um, at least Baptists in church, you know, when you get to seminary, you do hear about all this stuff. But in churches, I think it would be good to see that the son has always been submissive to the father, but that doesn't take away from his equality. And so that is the nature of this relationship that's existed from eternity past and will always exist. The son will always submit to the father, but will always at the same time be equal to him. All right, now, the uh, eighth verse here. He that loveth not knoweth not God, 
nurturing in a process. So I didn't give you, you know, a blank on your notes here for this one, but nurturing in a process, whenever you are born again, that obviously is not the end. Okay. We are nurtured in sanctification that builds upon our justification and that culminates in our glorification. That's another thing that I like about fundamentalists and Baptists in particular is because they clearly define and delineate between justification, getting saved, sanctification, growing in our faith, and glorification, we're not finished yet. God hasn't given us our glorified body. And there are lots of denominations that blur that. Catholics most especially blur justification and sanctification. They make them the same. If you're not being sanctified, you will not be justified. So justification is a goal that you're working for rather than something that you already have and you build upon. But sadly, in a different way, we have the same sort of thing happening in lots of churches because of Reformed theology. They'll say, yes, justification's a one-time event, but how do you know you're justified? Sanctification. So sanctification and justification once again get blurred. So it's important for us to understand the difference between them. And if you're listening, justification is a non-repeatable event. You get justified, excuse me, one time and never again. Just as if I had never sinned. Amen. I like that. Now, when you get justified, you're brought into the family of God. You're in the household and God says, you're my child. I got things for you to do. You'll always be my child no matter what. But if you disobey me, you'll be disciplined. And if you obey me, then I will bless you. I'm going to slowly change you to where you will have a more satisfying life. I will receive the glory and you will receive the joy. And they go hand in hand. A lot of people, I think the Reformed community especially, they think of God's glory as just like this ambiguous, vague thing. Like God's glory is sort of like God's reputation. That's how they think of God's glory. And when I look at scripture, I see God's glory fulfilled most clearly in love. And we think of God's glory, what is God's glory? It's a, a, a demonstration of his awesomeness, a manifestation of his awesomeness. Uh, but the glory of God often is seen as just reputation. So it's all for God's glory, they'll say. And so no matter what, as long as God receives the glory, and they think if it's like something that we give God, it's like a, a dose of praise here, a dose of praise there, and it, and it makes God... Get, get puffed up in this great, grand reputation. And I don't think that, I don't, yeah, and I don't think that's God's glory. I think God's glory is having his way with his creation, his way, righteously. And what is the way that God is most satisfied? Is he most satisfied with, you know, sacrifices in some legalistic system? No, he wants a contrite heart. Why does he want a contrite heart? Because he loves us and he wants us to love him back. He, 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 God actually wants us. He does not need us for his glory. He wants us. And there's this song, I think it's Peter Cetera, the glory of love, okay, is the title of song. And the glory of love, I think, is the ultimate glory. When we stand before God and we're singing praises to him, not because we have to, not to build up God's reputation, you know, as, okay, he's just some distant king, you know. Yes, he's powerful. So because he's all powerful, we got to give him that praise. No, no, no. We really love God. And we, we appreciate him for everything that he is in all of his aspects. And we are absolutely mystified that he loves us. Like this wonderful God made us his child. And there's nothing greater than that. That kind of praise from a loving heart is what pleases God. And so God is love. He gives it freely to us. 
and he wants us to give it freely back. That is the ultimate type of glory that God receives. I know there are other types of glory. The, the glory of his justice is a glory of God clearly taught in Scripture. And God will be glorified by on Judgment Day saying, these people, depart from me, I never knew you. God's glory as a just king will be manifested, but his ultimate glory is a relationship. What would God rather have? Would he rather have someone be deemed guilty and cast away and him proven to be righteous or someone be in a relationship with him, be forgiven and accepted? So the ultimate glory of God is the glory of his love. All right, now we're not going to be able to cover all of this today, but we're going to look at one more point. Verse 9. All right, verse 9. And this was manifested, the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. So the second part of the outline is the historical nature of love. So when we think of God's love, we don't think of a God who's distant. We don't speak of the universe, okay, that these are abstract concepts. I think of a God who's personal. People today are very comfortable with talking about a God in an impersonal sense a force, a unifying principle, again, the universe, okay? And they'll think of love as some abstract thing that just kind of floats up there. It's like some weird mystical essence. No, love is personal. And because it's personal, God has to reveal it to us personally. And because we dwell in time, he has to reveal himself historically. And so the point of verse 9 is the gift of love. So while God's love was manifested earlier in biblical history, the manifestation of, uh, sorry, get my word straight. The manifestation of Christ reminded the Jewish remnant, the Jews who believed then, of what the nation had twisted and what the Gentiles had forgotten. So did people know about the love of God long before Jesus came? Well, of course they did. And did people know that the coming deliverer would offer himself as a sacrifice? There are prophecies in the Old Testament, and the prophets did understand that the Christ would suffer. And he would suffer for sins. But they didn't know exactly how it was all going to work out, like as far as the chronology, but they knew it. So the Jewish people at one time were aware that Messiah will come, Messiah will suffer and die, Messiah will pay for sins, Messiah will come back from the dead. So this wasn't revealed for the first time when Jesus came. So in what way is the love of God manifested? Well, it's manifested or revealed because the Jewish people had forgotten about it. I mean, by the time Jesus came, the idea of a suffering Messiah who's going to pay for the sins of the world was completely lost on the Jewish people. And so Jesus is calling to their remembrance what has been said long ago, what's already been revealed. You should be prepared for this because it was taught through the prophets. And they understood it, and so you should have remembered it and passed it down. Unfortunately, humans, because of pride, we tend towards legalism. And so if we have to humble ourselves and admit that we need Jesus, we'd rather not do that. So making it something we can control with our own efforts, with our own works. That's what sin tends to lead people to do, the way we tend to think. But the next thing is the Gentiles, guys. I think the Gentiles, if you go back far enough, and when I say Gentiles, I mean non-Jews. Everybody was a non-Jew at one point, okay, before God called Abraham out and made him a special nation. There was a time when the Gentiles, okay, Noah, he was a Gentile, a non-Jew, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Did they know what God was going to do one day? Did they know that the Messiah was going to come? Well, they knew the Messiah was going to deliver us. They knew the Messiah was going to be wounded in some sense because the serpent was going to bruise his heel. 
and they knew that ultimately he would he would be victorious over that. So they knew the Messiah would come and he would suffer in some sense, but he would be victorious. So the Gentiles, they also knew something of God's love. And who knows what was taught to the prophets before the flood? We have no information about them, hardly. We have one prophecy from Enoch that's mentioned in the book of Jude, and it has to do with the return of the Messiah, the Lord, and how he's going to judge, and how he's going to come with the saints, with the angels from on high, and bring justice. That's all we have from those prophets. But who knows how many prophets before the flood talked about the sacrifice of Jesus or the sacrifice of the coming Messiah. And so the Gentiles, they had completely forgotten after Babel about these things, however much they knew. And the Jews who were taught more clearly through the prophets, they had that refreshed. They were reminded of it. And lastly, verse 10, and this is where we'll stop. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And under the notes, I say this is the price of sin. The gift of love, or sorry, the price of love. The gift of love sounds really great, but salvation isn't all sunshine and rainbows, is it? I mean, it was sunshine and rainbows for us, but it wasn't for Jesus, you know? And that's something we have to be reminded of, I think, that before the sunshine and rainbows, there was the rain and thunder of God's judgment. And Jesus suffered the brunt of God's wrath. That was a song that we just sang just a moment ago. The wrath of God was satisfied. That's a doctrine that's being lost in the church today. Evangelicals are supposed evangelicals. Evangelical, by the way, comes from the word gospel. Evangel. And you can't have a gospel if you take away the wrath of God being satisfied on the cross through Jesus' love. And so we think all about the gift of love in a culture. We do. Like, people have no problem with talking about God's love, but the price of that love is what people are not willing to talk about. Why did Jesus have to die? Why did this have to happen? Why couldn't God just freely extend his love? Because his justice demanded to be satisfied. And, you know, that's one of the ways God's glory is demonstrated. His love and the, his justice are demonstrated both at the same time on the cross. Yeah, he had he had to treat his son like the perpetrator of any and all crimes. Any and all crimes. And the worst ones imaginable. And that was the price. And or God in his justice could not just overlook sin. And so Jesus had to pay the price for us. And so that's going to bring us next week when we finish this up to the motivation for our service. And while this might be a motivation that we don't like to use as much, we do it with our kids all the time. Listen, I do all of this for you, all right? So you need to be thankful and do what I tell you to do. Y'all ever said that? Nope. Well, I have, okay? And I don't think that it's unbiblical because that's what God says. He says he showed his love to us by sending his son who laid down his life for us. So it is our reasonable service, as Paul would say, to love him back. And so there are other motivations, of course, that we've treated in the past and we'll talk about next week. But that's the one we're going to hit first off when we uh, begin again our study of First John 4. So thank you for listening. God bless. And hopefully uh, you got something out of it. Thank you.